Welcome to Stageworthy. I'm Phil Rickaby, the host of this podcast. This is episode 322. Stageworthy is a one-person operation, so not only do I arrange the guests, I edit the show, I promote it, I even created the music that's running under what I'm saying now. I also shoulder all the financial responsibilities that keep this show going. So if you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting it. There are a few ways that you can do that. First off, if you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those ratings and reviews help new people to find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And you can also leave a tip for the show by dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. I will put a link to that in the show notes, which you can find on the website or in your podcast app. But really, one of the most important things you can do, even more important than ratings, reviews, or even financial support, is to share it on social media. Even a retweet helps. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 322 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby, and as I mentioned, my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is Crystal Lee. Crystal is the production and technical manager at Why Not Theatre and the co-founder of What By When, a production firm that advocates for cultural and environmentally sustainable production and technical practices in the theatre industry. Originally from New Brunswick, Crystal has worked in technical theatre and management across Canada. Here's our conversation. Just to jump into things, could you? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm, I want you to describe what you do at Why Not Theater. Tell me what a production and technical manager is. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's. I think the simplest term is just a production manager, but uh, because there is no one else who's sort of accountable for um, production and technical departments um, at Why Not, we're you know we're we're a relatively small organization. I think we have about twelve uh, twelve full time folks now who've who've joined us in in different departments. Now we have a marketing department, which was not something that why not had uh pre-pandemic so hey that's pretty nice it's good to it have. is yeah it's good to have someone like be on social media and like understand all the like style guides of what why not is um i'm certainly noticing an impact and i like to think that uh you know having someone full-time as a production person on on the why not team is also effective um, so yeah, I'm essentially a production manager uh but i oversee all uh, production and technical aspects um, going into projects. Um, Why Not has a very interesting, or maybe I would say like interesting, everyone uses interesting as if it's like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> but really, this is more like unconventional. And I really love the way uh, Why Not um, categorizes the work and the priorities that they do. Um, so I'm just basically the point person for the execution process of all of that. Hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I, I, the whole production side, the technical side, mm -hmm. for a long time has been a a boys club, 
Yeah. And I know like, you know, it's it that's changing. I think the leadership though is largely still largely a boys club. Um mm-hmm. how do you see in in your day to day how do you see um that production leadership and the technical side changing that way? Yeah, that's a great question and and I think um it's it's a question I get a lot uh in in the industry. And I actually really enjoy answering it because I really believe in in the growth that's happening on my side of the industry. Um, how how do I see that growth? I guess is that what the question was? I mean, you could take it however you want. I mean, the yeah. thing is that that I think you know it's it's been somewhat stagnant. Like when I've yeah. looked backstage uh, at a number of productions, there's a long list of male names there. And that's, that's sort of a legacy of, of, of both misogyny and the history of, of how people fell into that, that side. But Mm -hmm. I know it's changing. I'm seeing a lot more, uh, uh, both, uh, 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 female and non-binary names come out Mm -hmm. in there. Um, so, uh, we do see the change. I'm just curious about how you, like, do you think it's moving at, at an appropriate pace or would you like to see it faster? What's that journey been like from your, from where you sit? Yeah, I guess there, I have a, a personal experience with, with that uh, question. And then I, like, I would say removing myself, um, not entirely, but, re- you know, removing myself from my own lived experience and like seeing the changes. Um, I would say there is growth. And, and I think sometimes maybe it's like, behind closed doors almost, or not behind a curtain, if you will, where it's like a particular aspect of the industry is maybe seeing more growth than other aspects. Um, I would say institution, you'll see a lot of like union members who are uh, still within that old guard, maybe that same sort of, you know, (laughs) archetypal like crew person who once was a roadie, Mm, (laughs) so to speak. And then, you know, has moved on into like larger houses. Um, I've spent some time like very early in my career working in larger houses. I I worked at the National Arts Center for a while. And I I think in my experience there, I only really saw a handful of women, women identifying crew leads. Um, and then during my time there, which was about five years ago, uh, they had brought on a, a head of props who was, who was female. And that was a huge, you know, a huge difference in leadership. And, uh, I think a huge difference in how people saw leadership, uh, particularly in that context. Um, so that was a very positive change. And, and I think I'm seeing more and more of that kind of pop up all over the place. Um, in, in the indie world, uh, I think there are, are a lot of, you know, female non-binary women identifying uh, production managers, technical directors. Um, there are all, you know, also some other marginalized communities that are, that lack representation mm. um, within that field, but uh, slowly but surely <laughs> it's happening. I would say it's happening more for uh, uh, bringing up more representation in, in gender than, than it was before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel like, um, Indie often leads the charge on 
a lot in a lot of ways. Like what 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 sort of happens in indie eventually finds its way moving up towards the more established theaters. And so I'm hoping that that this is the kind of thing that sort of like trickles upwards a little bit faster. I hope so too. And and you know I believe in indie and its lasting impact. <laughs> I know a lot of um, you know suppliers who are are now. I don't know, once, you know, did that fun Shakespeare in the park as a carpenter and is now like leading a major shop in town still has an indie heart and they like provide discounts and they provide resources and they provide mentorship. Like Mm. it really does feel like there, you know, there's a lot of camaraderie. Um, I mean, there's camaraderie everywhere in theater, Mm. but for some reason, like indie, knowing that we're all kind of you know, in it together, <laughs> whether it's part of your your job description or not, like you you want to see the thing happen because you know that it has value. You know the project has value. You know your your teammates have value. You're not you're not in it for the money, so to speak. Um, and yeah, that impact kind of stays with you. Uh, I, I like to think yeah, it certainly lasted with me. Now that I'm in a full time position, I want to find ways of you know offering resources and offering clarity and mentorship where I can. I think mentorship is one of those things that uh, is so important in the industry, especially where uh, leadership is concerned um, yeah. just generally. Uh, and it's something that I think for a long time we haven't seen much of, or at least mm-hmm. it wasn't really easy to find. And I think that we are seeing more mentorship did did you have uh mentors that 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 you that sort of like helped guide you and and give you advice along the way yeah definitely and i you know i think mentorship is a two-way street um so a lot of my mentors also had that agenda as well they were like you know you have a lot of value whether that being your your gender or your race you know i'm i'm a mixed race um Asian person, Chinese person, and uh, my parents are immigrants. And, you know, to have that sort of like, I don't know, experience that I bring to the table (laughs) within my own leadership style or expectation, um, that was a big learning for a lot of my mentors that I had. Both of my mentors um, are mostly, I would say, like white presenting. Um, Oh, there we go. We're okay. One We're second. okay. <laughs> oh, hilarious. Um, yeah, so those mentors, you know, always wanted to, uh, I guess they were more collaborators than, mm. than they were like fully men, full mentors, <laughs> if we want to say it that way. Like it was just a very collaborative experience. Um, I had things to talk about and they had things to, they wanted to share with me. Um, and they've stayed with me uh, throughout my career. Uh, my first mentor, his name is Paul Delmott, um, from New Brunswick, which is where I'm originally from. And he's the one who actually brought me into the theater. Uh, <laughs> he was the one who said, you know, let's spite all of these men who think that you can't do what you do mm. <laughs> and let's show them. Uh, and that was like very inspiring, um, to have someone who, you know, is, is um, ex- widely accepted in that side of the industry and to endorse me to be a leader in that community meant a lot to me. Mm. Um, so yeah, we, you know, we touch base every now and then. And then after I went to theater school, 
I did my internship at the National Arts Center where I met Spike Line. And Spike, such a funny, like, scary name for a mentor, Spike. <laughs> <laughs> Spike was my mentor. Yeah. He, you know, was also extremely collaborative, like, really looked out for me, uh, never made me feel like I was othered <laughs> you know which is like not the experience i had with other mm. um other folks of of you know that age bracket or that mm-hmm. knowledge institutional knowledge um so yeah to this day like spike and i call each other every now and then and you know shoot the shit and <laughs> nice. yeah where where in new brunswick did you grow up i grew up in what they call the armpit of the province uh <laughs> Just because of the shape of where it is. <laughs> but northern New Brunswick, uh, a small place called Bathurst. Okay. Um, about population 16,000 people. <laughs> I was just wondering because I know there's there's several parts, depending on where you're from, that might be referred to as the armpit of New Brunswick. So. <laughs> I think it's only, it's. I don't think it's like stinky or like <laughs> sweaty in any way. <laughs> I think it's just like in the arm of. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't know. Who knows why they call it that? Yeah. Um, so in New Brunswick and mm-hmm. and 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 growing up there, what 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 was your first introduction to theater, and how did you how did you find your way to the technical side? Yeah, it was a journey. <laughs> <laughs> I met up with a, an artistic director the other day for a show that I'm sort of involved with, and and he was like, "I resent that you're from the Maritimes," and I like don't know what that means, but I guess it means you know like t- to be, I don't know, involved in what we might identify Toronto as like the hub, you know, uh. of arts and culture of Canada. I don't know. <laughs> theater for for sure um or at least that's how i saw it when i was in the maritimes mm. I, I think this ad was like how did you get here <laughs> you know and i've been thinking a lot about this question like how did i get here um when i was young i i would say i was very interested in uh the magic of it all and i think maybe maybe, maybe the stereotype is that you're like so engulfed in the magic and but I was like oh magic is cool but like how how do you do that <laughs> it's not magic it's like it there has to be some logic to it there has to be <laughs> like what are how do I execute that magic so I will say I was very like type a and like really understanding um how one does a cool effect hmm. that can be masked as something like theater um, so I saw the Velveteen Rabbit and the magic in that show was not magic at all. I think it was a scrim that came down in the front of the stage and the way they, they played with lighting to, to animate the rabbit, um, from the, the stuffed animal to like the character was, uh, really mesmerizing. And so that was really interesting for a long time. Um, after I graduated from high school, I, I stayed in New Brunswick. I went to, a university called Mount Allison University in Sackville, which maybe could we could consider it the knee, the knee of New Brunswick. I don't know, like the toe. It's like sort of more south of New Brunswick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> also a very small town. I think population there was 5,000 people. And that's like with the population of the university. Right. Um, a lot of like, you know, black box theater, uh, studio theater, um, 
I was an actor there for a little while. Uh, I really enjoyed acting. I, I really j- just enjoyed the camaraderie of like being backstage and like, um, yeah, being with, you know, finding your network and being with pals and mm. commiserating together. Um, but I also was really, I, I was really good at pointing out mistakes for the backstage <laughs> crew. <laughs> uh, so I would, I was the one who was like, you know, I have notes. <laughs> I have notes about glow tape. I have notes about how I was dressed today. I have notes about this. I have notes about that. So clearly my mentor, Paul, who I mentioned earlier, um, saw this and wanted to hone it into, <laughs> reframe it into something maybe a little bit more practical for me. Um, he suggested that I apply for this job uh, in Parsborough, Nova Scotia, at a at a, a decommissioned ship that then became a theater called Ships Company Theater. Um, he told me to apply for the head tech position, which seems wild. I was an actor who like just had a lot of production notes to give, uh, and he suggested I apply for the job. I did. The person who interviewed me was like, do you know how to hang a light? I was like, no. Hmm. And he hired me anyways. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a, you know, a great learning curve. I, I learned so much. I was in the middle of nowhere in Nova Scotia. Um, I had a really great team. I, I think my carpenter was from Toronto. So she was also, you know, another great female leader, I think, early in my career. She was a badass and I wanted hmm. to be like that. Um, I also had a couple friends with me who like were stage managers on this gig as well. So I, I guess I had a lot of like passion for being with these people and working on these shows hmm. and like having agency in the technical world. And my curiosity just you know, spiked and I like wanted to learn more about electrics. I wanted to know more about like carpentry. I wanted to know more about adhesives Mm. (laughs) for some reason. (laughs) Like I had all these bizarre curiosities that just came out of this experience. Um, And then when I got back to university, you know, Paul and I had a great conversation about what my next steps want, what I wanted to do as, as my next steps. And he provided some more resources, um, and then I kind of like reframed my my degree a little bit to to do more of the technical management side of things. Um, after that, I I actually took a different approach. I got a job in administration um, in education, actually, mm. uh, at a roadhouse. So I was involved in like bringing in all these clients and all these artists who came from mostly Toronto, Toronto Mm. and BC, I would say, who would come in and they would do a show and also provide ancillary programming. So my job was to like, you know, provide or like coordinate workshops that were given to marginalized communities um, in Fredericton. So, uh, you know, we would have um, an indigenous dance troupe come and then we would like provide dance workshops with uh, indigenous communities mm. um, in, in New Brunswick, which was really lovely because at the time New Brunswick's education system was like really not arts forward. It was, mm. it was not considering arts as like a priority. And so it was, it was cutting a lot of funding in that way. And mm. I guess like I had another passion kind of, <laughs> you know, spike from that. And, and that was really figuring out how to, how to broaden the scope of, of uh, access for the arts. 
that idea of of you know cutting the arts that's something that's i think been happening more and more in north america yeah um the idea that that this strange idea that the arts are just for the elite they're just for rich people it's like it's not mm-hmm. important we don't need to worry about it we can just sort of get rid of it as we cut theater programs and music programs and art programs and all this sort of stuff mm-hmm. yeah we just look you know at europe and england and other places where these are things that are like funded and 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 people see them as important so important that like if the government was to talk about cutting them they would people would be very upset about it yeah yeah it has been pretty tough i would mm. say being on the on the mar- like being a maritimer and experiencing that was a different experience than um, coming to Toronto mm. and seeing that. Also, you know, I went to school in Montreal, and mm. and I would even say like the the French, the structure for funding for the French um, arts uh, is different than mm. on the English side. Um, and you know, within that there is white supremacy, and within mm-hmm. that there is mm-hmm. like inequity. You know, I really enjoy working for culturally specific companies, but I am saddened by the fact that a culturally specific company can only be a culturally specific company in order to qualify for funding sometimes. Mm. Like, it's not like they could do, I don't know, like... um, Like uh, Romeo and Juliet that didn't include some sort of narrative on, you know, social social justice or racial justice. Mm. Yeah, I kind of went on a tangent. That's too there, bad but. because I think that <laughs> I think I think there's a lot of companies that that would uh, do some really amazing work just by just with the play without having to feel like they had to add anything else. But hundred percent, yeah, yeah, it's so true. And and I think you know these companies they're really driven by the mandate of like um, making sure that there is representation, but. Uh, I just think all companies should should have that mandate. Like, I yes. don't know why we have to have culturally specific companies kind of leading that change as opposed to yeah. everyone just doing that and everyone doing all the kinds of Romeo and Juliet's that they want to, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I have this, I have this, this idea, this, this theory that, that, that a lot of times companies spend a lot of time honing their grant applications and trying to fulfill what they've stated for their mandate through that. And that just sort of like fil- fil- filters into this very literal way into the productions that they're doing and maybe is not as, I don't know what the word is. I think some people get a little too stuck on how they're writing their grants. That's just me. I think that's that's definitely true. And I, I think... <laughs> you know, these days I'm kind of advocating for, I want to say something I probably made up and then just, I've, I've, I've made it up with such confidence that it's become law <laughs> kind of thing. Like I, I often advocate for a uh, production management dramaturgy, which is just mm. a, an opportunity to like sit down with an artist and it doesn't necessarily just have to be production. It can mm. be like, you know, maybe you want to have, maybe you are doing something culturally specific and, and want to engage in like a consultant who can really speak for that. And how mm-hmm. do we open up, you know, the process of, of grant applications and, and building what that is 
a little bit more in line with what you want your project to be so mm. that costs can reflect and values can reflect better. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to see a world where that, that is more normalized. Yeah. Sort of a bit of a tangent, but I think it's related. Uh, years ago, I was it was out for Nuit Blanche. I remember mm-hmm. going out for Nuit Blanche. And I remember, um, uh, you know, you go through Nuit Blanche and a lot of times you're going through the, the program and you're, you're trying to figure out what the thing that you're going to see actually is. Because <laughs> it's sort of a description that's that's like it talks about the right, what it represents, what it represents and and mm. and all these all these really symbolic meanings and stuff. And you never really know what it is. And then one time I came across this installation somewhere that somebody had done and they had constructed like this, 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 this house structure and they put lights on it and they put some balloons on it. And I was like, okay, so tell me, what does this mean? And they said, I just thought it would be cool to put lights and balloons on this thing. Oh my gosh. Art for art's sake. I thought, (laughs) wouldn't it be amazing if we could just, say i thought it would be cool to do this thing and people would be like that sounds cool do yeah. it yeah yeah for sure and i guess you're saying that like it in a way we're almost not that we're fudging anything in a grant application but like the ideas aren't really distilled enough to yeah. like yeah i feel like sometimes they're they're esoteric and mm-hmm. and uh and 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 you know The excitement is, I thought it would be cool to put a balloon and lights on this thing (laughs) rather than sort of like, you know, I thought that the symbolism of the, the, this, you know, (laughs) that's sort of, that's sort of like art speak. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. You know, uh, here's another tangent that I'll Yes, please. (laughs) Just because I, I really live in this curiosity of like, what is art? What is music? You know, what, what is dance? Mm. What is movement? Mm -hmm. Um, on top of you know pr- trying to pursue this this acting career in or this acting degree in university, I also um, did a degree in in music composition, and my specialty was twentieth uh, century atonal music hmm. because I loved this philosophy of like, what is the difference between music and sound? Is sound music? Is like music a collection of sounds? What is that? And so some of my favorite composers, um, I mean, I guess in, in the atonal world, this is a pretty like basic one, but <laughs> John Cage, you know, did, did this uh, amazing piece called 433, mm-hmm. where it was four minutes and 33 seconds. And he like no- notated, he made charts for an entire symphony to just sit there and do nothing for four minutes and 33 mm-hmm. seconds. And you know, watching this, it was televised once on BBC, and uh, I, I watched the televised version. <laughs> <laughs> and and the the audience interaction to that was so interesting because mm. because of this like narrative of like ah, this is pretentious art. Right, like, we have to sit in the audience and like hold our breaths and like experience silence for four minutes and 33 seconds and then in between the movements that's when we can shuffle out of our chairs and you know sneeze and cough and clear our throats and do whatever we do and then as soon as the baton goes back up that's when we all hold our breath and like really intently look at the symphony doing nothing Hmm. for another you know a minute and a half just very interesting about how we perceive art and i guess maybe this goes back to like the access of like where art is produced and how mm-hmm. it's produced and how it's marketed and who who goes to see the the art, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. I I find, you know, we, we we're in an industry where it's one of the only industries in the arts where somebody says things like, I saw a play once and I didn't like it, so I don't do theater, right? Mm. You know? And and occasionally people talk about how expensive it is. And it's like, well, that's only yeah. if you're going to certain theaters. Like, there's so much more out there. But trying to break down these ideas that that it's hard to find or it's inaccessible and uh, or just expensive, just like there's so much more that than what people think it is. Yeah, that's for sure. And I I, you know, to go back to indie, I think indie is really pushing what that convention can and can't be. You know, I think it's I think it's sometimes nice to like you know, go to the Princess of Wales theater and like really experience theater in, in maybe that bougie kind of way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's yeah. definitely like some value in doing that. There's also value in, you know, going to a pop-up or like a Nuit Blanche and not really knowing what you're going to expect and yeah. paying absolutely no money and, <laughs> you know, going to see weird art. Like, yeah. I love that. Um, there's a project that why not is doing that I'm production managing right now, um, called mashup Pondy road. And it's, uh, it's sort of like this, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Carabana, like yeah. the festival. Yeah. So it's, it's very Carabana inspired. Mm. It's, um, going to be opening up in little Jamaica. And one of the great things I love about working with why not is that we're, we're often partnering with other companies in town who, mm you know, may not have the full resources of an organization. So um, my producer and I are, are are going to be the like technical and producing support on the project uh, and steward them financially as well. Um, and part of the mandate of, of this project is to like not reach the audiences that would go to the Princess of Wales. Mm-hmm, Theater. Mm-hmm. And that's like no, sh- no shade on, on Princess of Wales theaters or, or, you know, those audiences, but like, how do we access people who, don't know anything about theater yeah, or like have never been to the theater or may have d- barriers to going to the theater, whether that's mm-hmm. cost or whether that's location or not knowing how to. Um, and so something that I've like never really experienced as a production manager is like being a part of those conversations of like what it means to go into space and not colonize it, mm. go into space and like, actually have ambassadors who are like welcoming you in and, Mm -hmm. and buying into your work because they know it will animate their community in a way that maybe it hasn't been animated before. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I'm just like right now in my, my journey, like post pandemic, you know, understanding the nuance of like what production and technical can be outside of maybe, purely (laughs) execution of projects it's Mm. it's actually you know there's a holistic project or process to to the project that you know collaborates with other members of communities that that we want to reach so yeah having lots of fun fun with that is that something you explored more over the pandemic yeah i would say i got really into advocacy over the pandemic um Generally, <laughs> generally within my my branch of the industry, I think, you know, the, the murder of George Floyd mm. sparked a lot of um, um, conversations around racial inequities and, and social justice and and going back to leadership and being a woman of color in a leadership role, whether that is, you know, middle management or not, like I do have agency mm-hmm. and I do have influence and I, I do have a lot of privilege too. And so like, how do I 
use my voice in, you know, a small way, but hopefully impactful in process um, to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I started thinking a lot about like, uh, particularly in my experience with indie, uh, there's just a lot of burnout. There's a lot of like, not great livable wages. (laughs) And, you know, you talk about mentorship and how indie is, is a huge access point to like getting your first mentor or getting, you know, your first job out of school. So why is it that we're burning people out so early in the game? If, if we know that there's a demand for it and we're not like investing in the -hmm. industry, you know? So I started asking a lot of these questions and, um, production management is is also a very like siloed very lonely job <laughs> i never work with other production managers i'm just working alone leading other people and hoping that i'm doing the right thing um so yeah i started thinking a lot about um like advocating a lot for process over product i, I think you know a lot of folks um really just want to get to opening night, you know, like the show must go on. We've mm-hmm. got to get there. And then once, once we get there, once we survive this, you know, we'll be happier. And I thought about how much that really was a bummer. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just want to, don't want to be here to survive the process. That sucks. Like I want to be here because like y'all are my friends and you're my team. And like, I trust you and I'm having a great time executing the show and then i'm happier during opening night because i know that i haven't like burnt anyone out or you know got into any fights with anyone in the process Mm. like everyone is happy and feeling supported and wants to do this again and so that just became i guess a a mission that i had over the pandemic about like Mm. what are the systemic issues that keep people from having a good time in the process is it like the lack of understanding of what we do? Is it the lack of of time? Is it, again, going back to granting, like, is it not knowing enough information about how we want to budget shows mm. or how we might want to pay people or what resources we need? So, yeah, I had a lot yeah. of questions. <laughs> yeah, no, it's that idea of surviving the process to get to opening night, I think, is probably one of the worst things that one of the worst habits, I think, that sometimes we have. Because the process is what gets us there. We don't just like the process is such an important part of getting to the opening, right? To creating a show. And if we're just concentrating on surviving it, just getting through it, then what are we really accomplishing in the process? Totally, totally. And I, I think, you know, that's a bit of a maybe a hang up from previous generations of, of doing this kind of work. Mm. I know it was a, a a big theme in theater school for Mm -hmm. me you know i went to national theater school and i know since since a lot of those conversations came up they've started to change what the structure of you know having a bit of time to to breathe and like make better health choices i I know that's more of a a conversation there Mm. but when i was there you know i think culturally there were eight of us in a class and and i know that we all wanted to prove ourselves, mm-hmm. and we were also uh, a batch of I think there were six six women uh, women identifying one non non binary person, and we all like we were all very competitive. Like th- it was this weird like wanting to prove yourself as a woman mm. or like wanting to prove yourself as a person of color, like wanting to m- 
I don't know, prove yourself as a queer person. Like there was just all these like identities, like trying to prove ourselves to this, like <laughs> this idea of like, we are just as good as the generation before us who like pushed those boxes and, mm. you know, we're twice our size and stayed up all night. And like, you, you know, that's sort of like arch- archetype, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A stereotype. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there was certainly a culture of like, if they needed to go eat a sandwich during their break, wow, they are not cut out for this. And that's extremely <laughs> unhealthy. <laughs> and so I started yeah. to see that. Like I started to engage in that sort of culture when I was in Toronto as well. Like I know I was like working way above what I, like what I was being paid to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I started volunteering my time. I started volunteering my resources. I like wanted to be the best that I could be and prove myself in the industry. And like, also I didn't know who I was competing with. So I was just blindly doing all this survivalist, whatever (laughs) to like make a name for myself. And I, I just don't ever want anyone to feel that they have to do that again. (laughs) Is it any wonder that, that, that people burn out in Indy when, you know, you know, the crew is set, the technical side is setting that example. The actors Mm -hmm. are working for, who knows how much little, maybe nothing, maybe a, uh, a box office split or something like that. And yeah, it's just like, we, we ask so much of people and don't respect their time and their, you know, their pocketbook really. I mean, it, we, throughout the industry as a whole, we don't pay people what they're worth. And we ask a lot of people and in indie, we're really asking a lot. So it's a, no wonder that people burn out. For sure. And I know that, you know, there's like two sides of that, right? Like there's, there's the side that we just talked about earlier where there is passion there and it, it's a great opportunity to like make connections and like sit in the shit with other people, you know, like (laughs) your experiences come out of, of those moments. Um, I know the biggest mistakes I've made were in indie and I know that the biggest forgivenesses that I got were in indie. Mm -hmm. Um, so I feel that and I value that. And I, I think that everyone understands what that value is. The other side of that is exactly what you're talking about. The burnout, the high demand, the the not able, the, the I guess the inopportunity for like taking a risk on someone who's new and providing mm. them with structure and support so that they can not burn out. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah like... I guess like part of that advocacy is, is really trying to define like, what is it as an industry? What is it that we need as an industry Mm. collectively? Like how can we standardize some things so that we all can knowledge share a little bit better so that we can all, you know, be more sustainable together, whether that's culturally or like environmentally, like, do we all really need to put in our resources to build the same wooden riser over and over again so that <laughs> it would, it will just go <laughs> to the dump? Like, yeah. you know, there has to be better structures in place to kind of like make a, I don't know, manifest some better like holistic values. I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, definitely that's that's all stuff. It, it requires coordination and communication. And I, I know a couple of times I've seen people try to start things like that. Um, but of course, because there's no money and because it takes a lot of time, those things almost always fizzle. So somehow there's some kind of bridge in between to to make those those kinds of like links happen. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. 
And, you know, I think part of, so the, I guess the thing that I'm sort of fighting for um, within production management and technical direction is, is working with other like-minded uh, folks in the, in the industry. Um, we've like banded together as a collective. <laughs> I feel like we're so like intimidating when I say that, but uh, we're just a bunch of PMs and TDs who have come together and, you know, have also recognized that this is a problem in the industry. So mm. we're starting to talk more and more about um, just breaking down someone's job mm. and like, you know, getting more people in the room to advocate for certain things um, like recognizing blind spots. Cause I like, I think it's easy for, for the industry to say like, oh, they're underpaying that person. Like this is a, don't associate yourself with this company because they don't pay people well, mm-hmm. but it's actually not like, I, I doubt that it's actually like intentional. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to think that it's not intentional. Like, I like to think it's just maybe a gap in knowledge because there is no standardization of like what my job is in Canada. Yeah. Or at least I haven't found one. You know, I cobbled a six page document from like <laughs> multiple contracts that I've received in the past to like try and start the conversation of like, no, this is what's included in a production budget. And this is what's included in like my job title. These are the things I'm not expected to do. And you shouldn't ask me to do that. Or you should compensate me more if you want me to do those things. Mm. Like, you know, just like allowing for more conversation around what these resources are so that we can properly give that wage or like allocate budget to it. Now that that group that you were talking about, is that what by when? No, it's it's means of production. Okay. What by okay. when is is uh <laughs> what by when is like also sort of within the same canon, I guess. Hmm. Um my business partner and I, uh Wes Babcock, we he he's more of a technical director brain and I'm more of a production management brain and I think sometimes people convolute those two <laughs> roles and assume that they're the same. Yeah. Uh, so we kind of like within our own, I guess within our own circles, we decided to say like, no, if you're going to hire me, you're going to hire me. And then you're also going to hire Wes and like, we'll be a collective and we will promise that your process will be so much better mm. <laughs> just hi- if, if you invest in both of us. Right. And so since then we, um, I think we built a name for our like little partnership. Uh, we decided to create like a, a firm, I guess. And uh, now we're advising uh, a few companies in town and uh, we have seven associates under us who like under this sort of mentorship idea where we like supervise them. Um, they watch us uh, start the execution process and then they follow through with hmm. it. Um, so it just provides a little bit more structure for their learning. And then, uh, yeah. And then we kind of get to, you know, be a part of the project and, and not suffer from FOMO. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. I'd like to change the subject slightly. Yeah, um, sure. Probably more than slightly. Um, yeah. I know that you, uh, you curl, you are a curler. Your sport <laughs> of choice is curling. Um, yes. How did you start curling? Um, (laughs) so I grew up in New Brunswick (laughs) and curling in New Brunswick is pretty big over there. For Um, a second, I thought that was going to be the whole story. So I grew up in New Brunswick. (laughs) And that's all we do there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We just eat lobster and curl. (laughs) No. (laughs) 
<laughs> there's more to it than that. Um, no, I, I, I started, uh, well, I needed a hobby, you know, it couldn't just be music. It couldn't just be uh, theater. So mm. my parents said, well, you can have your choice of two sports. They cannot be contact sports. <laughs> they can either be curling or they can be golf. <laughs> and I enjoyed curling more. Um, because it is more of a contact sport sometimes, <laughs> depending <laughs> on how intense you curl. Yeah. So I, I remember when I was growing up, I yeah. think I, I recall, uh, and you know, this will date me, but CBC during a certain time of year on Sundays would broadcast the Scots tournament of hearts. Oh my gosh. Yes. And, um, my image, I mean, Olympic curling and watching people curl now, it is completely different from the images that I saw on TV back in the in those days when I was watching that. You know, it was all like dads smoking their cigarettes and all this sort of stuff. Um, obviously, that is not what <laughs> necessarily what what you saw in curling. Um, did what was what was that first time because i've curled since then and it is actually people think it's an easy sport but it is actually quite strenuous is that something that surprised you and and how do you keep from one side of your body becoming stronger than the other oh my gosh what a great question <laughs> oh it's like really refreshing to not talk about production management sometimes i'll say <laughs> so thank you for asking this um in my experience as a curler, I I was on the junior women's team um, in Bathurst. And what that meant was uh, we were in the running to qualify for the Canada Winter Games, um, which was very exciting. Uh, so we had a team, you know, we had like a marketing sponsorship. We, you know, had the cool jackets. We were very cool in school <laughs> with our like jock jackets, our jock curling jackets. Um <laughs> And uh, we we did end up qualifying for the first round, mm -hmm. and then we lost, unfortunately, the the second qualifier. So we didn't end up going to the Canada Winter Games. But the training process and all of that was quite rigorous. Mm. Um, typically, a, a curling season is, I would say, like maybe late October, November to March. Um, so we were obviously on the ice th that whole time. Um, and in the off season, we were running track. We were like training. We were on a specific diet. Um, and then I guess like the, the strengthening, I, when you say like strengthening of, of one side of your body versus the other, do you mean like the, the kicking off is, I mean, I mean, because a lot of it seems to be like you, you kick off, you're like, you've got like one arm that tends to hold the rock, yeah. that sort of thing. At least when I've the couple of times that I've done it, that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. There is a, a bit of an imbalance there. Um, yeah, I would say, you know, my my right leg was probably a bit stronger than my other. <laughs> it wasn't like noticeably like, oh, wow, she's a curler. Like, look at her right leg. <laughs> it wasn't like that by any means. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there was a lot of like, like, I guess, full body strengthening um, throughout the year to maybe mm. help with that. Um, my, my role particularly, um, on the team, I was, I was the third, which meant I was the mate, I guess you call, you call me the mate or the third. Um, and my job was to like smash through all the rocks. Right. Really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so my kick was like much stronger than the two other, the, the two other women who went before me. Um, so maybe I had a beefier right leg than everyone else on the team. <laughs> 
Yeah. Now that I think about that. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> I always thought, I always like liked the idea of curling and both times that I've had the opportunity to do it, I really enjoyed it. When I was a lot younger, I thought to myself, listen, if I ever decided that it was time to go to the Olympics, the only option I have at the age that I'm at is curling. <laughs> Yeah, it's it actually becomes, I think, more of a casual sport the older you get. Too. Yes, like, yes. You can bring your beer on the ice, and like, <laughs> like there's this like weird drinking culture around curling, <laughs> which is maybe not seen in like squash. I don't know. Uh, probably um, not. Probably not. I, I know that the weaker thans never immortalized <laughs> the drinking after a squash game uh, in song. I don't know. I don't. I don't squash. <laughs> my my right leg is too beefy for squash. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I know you're also you 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 love you love to cook. Is that something? Because you know what, I only recently, as as a as a human person, decided that I was gonna like learn to cook. I did really far too too long in my life, um, like pulling down like like pre made dinners and eating out and ordering in and all that sort of stuff. And and uh, my girlfriend actually inspired me to to cook. is cooking something that you've always done or is that something that's, that's more recently become a passion for you? Yeah. Um, I think like anyone, like as soon as you become a quote unquote adult, you have this like, Oh shit moment where you have to like take care of yourself. Um, so I would say that naturally occurred, uh, in my twenties when I was in university and, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I grew up in a household. My stepdad is is Mauritian, and my um, my mother is from Hong Kong, and so we <laughs> in Bathurst, New Brunswick, the only immigrant family there, I guess at the time, uh, we were eating some pretty um, uh, like some different cuisines than mm. than what my friends had, would see, and it just became like a very. Um, I would say like connected me with my culture hmm. and with home. Uh, yeah. So my, my family also came to Canada because, um, my grandfather started a Chinese restaurant hmm. in the East coast. So I have this love of, of wanting to, I don't know, pay tribute. Is that really silly <laughs> to maybe make a connection to Like, I, I feel like I want to pay tribute to, um, my Cantonese culture, uh, hmm. through food and, and, you know, I, I don't speak the language as often and I'm not embedded in, in the cultural practices of my, what my grandmother practices. So I think, I think, um, food, first of all, Chinese food is delicious. Mm -hmm. Um, very easy to make, very improvisational. So I would, if you're having a hard time, like getting into it, (laughs) I would really recommend, you know, doing a lot of stir fries and things like that. Hot pot. it's Mm -hmm. It's a great communal sort of meal to do with friends. Um, yeah, it always felt, uh, really comfortable to kind of get out of, um, the busy work and, and kind of like meditate over making a fun improvisational bowl. Hmm. I, I make this thing, thing sometimes called garbage bowl <laughs> that my partner and I call it. <laughs> it's just like whatever is in the fridge and we need to make into a stir fry. <laughs> so garbage bowl has be- become a, a huge staple in our household. <laughs> Is there is there a uh, a particular uh, comfort food something that you make when you're like I, I really feel like I, I this is it's like a cold winter night or I'm tired or I mm. just need that feeling of home Is there a particular thing that you make or order in or go out to mm. eat 
Yeah, I think different categories of of comfort food, right? <laughs> D- maybe different seasons of comfort food. Lately, I mean, I'm in my 30s, but my partner and I have been into like the TikTok trends of of food of what what's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been playing a little bit around uh, like some some of those uh, trends. I would say like the comfiest thing for me uh, and something that I've actually integrated back into <laughs> my work practice is uh, a hot pot. Um, mm. So I don't know if you're familiar with what a, a Chinese yeah. style hot pot is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's very communal. I think it's very like, um, you know, it's, it's uh, accessible to folks who have different dietary restrictions mm-hmm. because you can, you know, separate what is getting cooked. Um, and so, yeah, this is something that I'll do. It's also very easy. You just chop up a bunch of like raw vegetables and throw it into a pot and drizzle some sauce on it and call it a night. Mm. Um, and I started doing this as like a, a means of getting everyone together before um, we hit tech week. Mm. <laughs> so I would bring my like, my um portable hot pot machines we'd you know go to my place or go somewhere with a large table that could seat everyone on the production team and we would just like share a meal um Hmm. when when it was you know possible to do that and safe to do that um and it really just like kind of calmed everyone down it got us out of you know the theater a little bit it got Hmm. us out of work it got us out of the sense of urgency and it Hmm. just like let us have a moment together as a team mm-hmm. before we hit the deck running. So, yeah, I would say hot pot. That's great. Yeah, so, two things that I miss uh, that I've missed desperately over the over the pandemic. One is going out for hot pot. Yeah. Second is dim sum, like going out oh. for good good cart service dim sum. Yeah. Two things that I can't wait to get back to once I feel safe in restaurants. Yes. Yeah, I think that time is coming. I, I think really I'm about so. to I'm about to go to dim sum this weekend. So. Oh my god! Okay, Maybe so I'll see you there. <laughs> so where is your dim sum spot of choice? Um. Okay. There's this really hilarious place um, up in Richmond Hill. It's right by my grandmother's house. Uh, so. You know, I think maybe it's just a favorite because it's in close proximity, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) it is in this giant like convention center, like a banquet hall. And there are these like huge Renaissance paintings and like, like everything is super Victorian and ornate. And then it's just like dim sum on. Wow. That's awesome. (laughs) So in terms of a vibe, that's my favorite dim sum place. It's it's called, I believe it's called Premiere. Premiere. Oh, one of these days I'll have to try it out. (laughs) Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Well, Crystal, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Phil. This has been great. I hope to see you either on the ice or around some dim sum carts. Absolutely. 